Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. With these various conditions that aren't directly related to bacteria, it's because it's, it's, it's immune-modulating. And all of these future therapies, low-dose naltrexone and helminth therapy and just, I mean, some of the basis of acupuncture. I mean, all of this, a lot of it comes back to immune modulation. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 167 with our good friend, Dr. Rob Abbott. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn why mycoplasma is not technically a co-infection, a helpful resource for your talking to your doctor about potential co-infections, and how the future of disease treatment is going to be immune modulation therapy. Thanks, Aurora. Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners tune in from all over the globe. This week we have listeners from Calgary to Dublin and Leeds to Zurich. Also, here's our top 10 listener city list. Coming in at number 10. Number 10 is Coventry, Connecticut. Number 9, Naperville, Illinois. Number 8, Medway, Massachusetts. Number 7, Eagle River, Arkansas. Number 6, Syracuse, New York. Number 5, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Number 4, Tempe, Arizona. Number 3, Bluffin, Indiana. Number two, Olive Branch, Mississippi. And number one for the second week in a row, Bald Knob, Arkansas. Way to go, Bald Knob. (laughs) Okay, Roy, tell us a little bit more about our guest this week, Dr. Rob Abbott. Rob Abbott is a first-year family medicine resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Front Royal, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017. He approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls spiritually focused and evolutionary informed functional medicine. Thanks, Aurora. Here's our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott. Dr. Abbott, hello. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. 
Hey, McCain. Lyme disease, as we've mentioned, and you've talked about numerous, numerous occasions, is caused by a bacteria. It's an extracellular bacteria, so primarily um, existing, living outside the cell. It is not a it's not existing in a parasitic type relationship. It does not uh, rely on uh, anything from the organism to to propagate. It can you know, exist independently, um, but it is it is a bacteria, and its vector or its vehicle for uh, transmission into the host most commonly is the hard-bodied deer tick. Now we are understanding that. Other organisms can carry or be you know, inoculated, be reservoirs for this type of bacteria. Um, but we're, we need to be very clear when we understand what is a vector, which is something that can actually transmit the bacteria, that were, in this case the Borrelia, or something that is um, simply a reservoir. It's a place where the bacteria can replicate, but you can't actually transmit or inoculate another organism. And that's that area is exploding with spectrum and gray because there are studies coming out you know every year describing the presence of organ of you know borrelia and some of these different pathogens in various uh, organisms and in different vectors and then trying but trying to prove that it can be transmitted inoculated into a new host cause an infection the clinical illness that takes much greater rigor. And that's where I think a lot of people in very rigorous immunologic settings have a tough time. Um, they want to have that clear, I see this organism in, in a tick. I've scanned the tick. I see it's there. I see that it has been, you know, this tick has bitten an individual. It has been transmitted into this person. I can find evidence of the bacteria um, in this person and that it caused some clinical syndrome. That actually is, can be a pretty tall ask. That's one reason we're so frustrated for the scientists. Like, come on, guys, speed it up. And they're saying, wait a minute. You know, we don't even know these fundamental questions. Like, what's a vector and what's a reservoir? And and also to, to just let me see if I get this right. So a reservoir is the deer itself. Like, nobody's running around getting bit by deer and getting Lyme disease from a deer bite. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, you know, commonly lots of the rodents and mammals, um, when we're referring to these tick-borne diseases, I'm just identifying a tick because I think that's the most relevant vector that we're going to discuss today. You know, there's a lot of reservoirs such as the deer and, you know, certain mammals and rodents. But like you said, you know, we're not being bitten by these animals. There's no transmission inoculating event that's that's common anyway. Um, and it's difficult, you know, I, so, you know, this research, like you said, is going to take lots and lots of time. And it just, there's so much variability, you know, the, you can look at a specific geographic region, collect all these different types of ticks and sample them and look at the DNA to see is what's the prevalence of Borrelia? What's the prevalence of Babesia? What's the prevalence of various Rickettsial species in these ticks, you know, and at different stages of the life cycle of the tick, and then try to predict, you know, well, how many of the ticks have both of these, um, or two of the infections, how many have three, um, and then try to correlate with that with the cases that you see, the clinical cases, and then kind of overlay, overlay those geographic maps. And there's just so much variability. Um, it's not something I think we're ever going to have a definitive uh, understanding of because it's so variable. If um, if you guys don't take anything else away from this, and 
there's probably a lot to to not take away. Um, but if you don't take, you know, <laughs> the, the main thing to take away, I think, is coming back again to seeing this as a problem of immune dysfunction and realistically taking away the power of the pathogen as the sole reason for your illness and trying to understand the environment, the terrain, rather than just the organism. I really want people to take home the role of the immune system. And I, once again, see that as empowering. What can I do to help support my immune system? Whether or not I know I'm infected or was previously infected with rickettsia or what have you. Um, maybe that made sense? It does. But let's let's bring that back to, you know, the, I'm sure there are people out there waiting. Okay, but but what about Bartonella? What what's mycoplasma? Tell me about <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's like so yes. let's let's get down to the, the brass tacks here. And actually yes. I, let's start here because what is mycoplasma? I keep hearing that. You know what, to be honest with you, I really don't know what it is. I should. I'm embarrassed I don't. <laughs> so so it is it has the moniker, um, and some people can argue this, but as the smallest free living bacteria. Um, it's actually, as I mentioned earlier, smaller than some of the larger viruses. And uh, it's, um, it's also well known because it does not contain, a, it does not have a cell wall that we commonly see with other bacteria. It really has a, a membrane that looks much more like a cholesterol-laden membrane. It has these sterols, very similar to um, our cholesterol, but a sterile-based membrane. Um, so it gets in that category that we call of atypical organisms that would not respond to many of the antibiotics that target, you know, the replic, you know, the integrity of a cell wall because it doesn't have one. Now, how come so many people with Lyme disease have it? Does it come along with the tick? Yes. So this is where I want to. Uh, stress, you know, when I refer to a co-infection, I'm going to define that term as something that is carried with the tick that inoculated you with the Borrelia species. So in this case, the the specific deer tick, a co-infection would be any organism that could be carried by that tick and transmitted with the tick bite along with Lyme. Mycoplasma as far as we understand it, is not transmitted by tick bites. That's something that if you go and read, and there's, I know, Dr. Rawls, and there's a lot of people out there talking about mycoplasma as being the most common co-infection. And it is a common infection. It's a common bacteria that we are exposed to, but it is not transmitted through the through a tick, through a tick bite, as we see it with Borrelia. So this is one of those deals where somebody says, oh, yeah, I've got a co-infection, it's mycoplasma, and a doctor or researcher will roll their eyes and say, this person has no idea what they're talking about. Exactly. And I think, I will say, you know, I was kind of beating Dr. Rawls a little bit uh, there. Um, he uses the term stealth infection, yes, um, which I think, and he, he has one of those Venn diagrams, trying to show um, that the body can house some of these pathogens, going back to that term of you can be infected with this organism, it may not be causing a clinical syndrome, until something else disturbs the immune system that then allows it or makes it 
become more active, start replicating, and it can infiltrate certain tissues. Um, So I think what happens is commonly people have been infected with mycoplasma because it is just a common bacteria. And we get a disruption in the immune system, such as an infection um, with Borrelia, um, Lyme disease, and it can manifest as some other symptoms that really aren't attributed to the Lyme organism. Interesting. And are there antibiotics that are effective in treating mycoplasma? Yes. So commonly, and this goes back to our main understanding in immunology and microbiology of these organisms is understanding their natural progression uh, and initial clinical picture. So we do not, mycoplasma is not studied classically as a reactivating infection or a co-infection, I think, as we've has been commonly referred. It is been it has been studied as a primary infection that usually causes what we refer to as a walking pneumonia. Um, basically, somebody you know, college age kid who may have a low grade temperature, maybe have some mild body aches, uh, and you know, non productive, possibly productive cough, who usually will actually get better over one to two weeks without anything. Um, but this kind of low grade, they're not knocked over, you know, with super high grade fevers and just, you know, the classic productive, you know, gross sputum, those types of, those types of things. It's, it's generally a more innocuous infection. That being said, it can be detected. Um, there are tests, antibody tests, and it's commonly treated with a macrolide antibiotic. That class of antibiotics, the most common is azithromycin. And that class of antibiotics targets some of the protein synthesis of the bacteria. So going back to, you know, mycoplasma doesn't have a cell wall. So, you know, it's uh, the drugs like penicillin, amoxicillin, those medicines that are targeting the stability of bacterial cell walls, they're not effective. So we have to use uh, antibiotics that um, target more the protein synthesis. So that's what azithromycin and those macrolide antibiotics do and why it's effective. And how are the antibody tests for mycoplasma? Are they good? They're um, pretty reliable or are they like Lyme and they can be not so great? So this is, it a is clinical where, diagnosis, or do people test for that? It is, uh, it is routinely a clinical diagnosis. Okay. So you can test for. We talked about the IgM antibodies being more acute phase, the IgG antibodies being sort of more um, after the resolution of an acute infection. So you can test for. IgM antibodies. You can test for IgG, um, but going back to our understanding of the immune system, um, you know, it's uh, it's quite unreliable to rely on that testing because it will take um, multiple weeks to convert from an IgM to IgG, and a lot of us will uh, test positive for IgG, and that may be just a signal of a past infection and trying to attribute certain symptoms to a positive IgG is is really not that helpful. We can do PCR testing, which is really kind of testing the genetics of the bacteria, which is more rapid, but that's only done on certain types of specimens that get taken from really sick folks um, in the hospital. So, you know, testing is really not the primary way of diagnosing. It's more commonly clinical, and then you can do subsequent testing to try to confirm, but it's usually a clinical diagnosis. Okay, let's move on. 
How about Bartonella? Yes. Is, is it a co-infection? So Bartonella, I think, is probably the most interesting and evolving organism in terms of its relationship with Lyme. Um, classically, Bartonella was not thought to be a co-infection. It's not thought to have been transmitted by deer ticks with Borrelia into organisms and cause disease. It has been more understood as um, an intracellular bacteria that can be transmitted from cat scratches. So the common uh, disease that we see, disease state, with that organism is called cat strat, cat, cat scratch disease. Um, and it can manifest as basically local swelling, redness, um, lymph, lymph nodes. We also understand it um, in individuals who are relatively immunocompromised, who uh, are infected with HIV, um, AIDS patients, uh, it can present a little bit differently with an infection kind of affecting some of the blood vessels um, called bacillary angiomatosis. Um, that, those are the classic understandings of this organism. But there are studies now that have looked at and have found Bartonella in ticks. And there's even now some cases, small um, reported cases, of Bartonella of a Bartonella you know, pathogenic infection caused by a tick bite that was confirmed to, that tick was confirmed to have the Bartonella species. Um, it's still very early in this discussion um, in terms of is it a true is it, is it truly a part of a uh, arthropods, part of ticks? Um, and I think we're going to find that it will emerge as a true co-infection. But for now, just based off of the prevalence and documented cases, cases of disease, um, since it's so limited, I think we really need to treat it as just an emerging co-infection, but shouldn't see it in the same light as some of these other really well-studied tick-borne diseases. And then what's the antibiotic for Bartonella? Yes. So Bartonella is also commonly treated with azithromycin that, um, that messes with sort of protein synthesis. Uh, and doxycycline is also used. So there is some benefit. You get a lot of cross coverage with doxycycline. Um, doxycycline, and coming back to the mechanism, is somewhat similar to uh, the macrolide antibiotics like azithromycin. Um it basically blocks uh, action of protein synthesis, you know, blocks the, the bacteria's ability to make proteins and thus will stop it from being able to, uh, to replicate. So it is not affecting the outer membrane. Um, so uh, what, where we can get into trouble with some of these antibiotics for certain organisms is this is what we call a bacteriostatic drug. It relies on this replicating state. The drugs that, you know, target the cell membrane, such as penicillin, they're considered considered bactericidal because they can kill really at any time. The bacteria doesn't need to be trying to produce proteins, trying to replicate. Um, it can kill it in a, in a relative dormant state. Now, if it doesn't have that kind of structure um, or it has a different type of outer membrane, like a lot of the gram-negative bacteria, then they're not very effective drugs. But the drugs that are, um, that are most commonly used, these doxycycline and azithromycin, are really bacteriostatic. They rely on replication because they're blocking protein synthesis. And that's a side bear there. That's the 
logic behind giving long-term doxycycline is that the Borrelia's reproduction cycle is slower and so it needs longer period of time to be exposed to this transition, this replicating uh, time, so the antibiotic can be effective. Exactly. You're trying to catch more of the organisms, you know, because they're not all at the same stage of life cycle, just as the ticks aren't at all at the same adult stage or nymph stage. There are different stages of their life cycle. So having a medicine, you know, for a longer period of time is more likely to catch that organism you know, or a variety of organisms as they progress through their normal life cycle. Cool. All right, moving right along. Ehrlichia. What is that? Yes. So this is when we can start to get into, and I will classify three of these infections that include Ehrlichia as the most common co-infections that we see with Lyme. Okay, so what are the Um, other two? So um, anaplasmosis and and babesiosis. Now, what happens, and this is still murky as well, so Ehrlichia is commonly the one that we classically understand is actually not uh, carried by the deer tick. It's in a different type of tick. But there's an emerging species um, uh, of Ehrlichia that is actually has been found to be carried by a deer tick and has been found to cause disease. Um, but it more commonly is causing illness. Um, from a different type of tick bite, but it is one of the most commonly understood tick-borne diseases that's emerging to potentially be a true co-infection. Um, and there's also quite a bit of overlap in some of the geographic regions for Ehrlichia. It's more commonly in the Midwest, but as we start to um, further map which ticks are carrying what types of organisms, we're starting to see that there is some overlap. So you could be bitten by a deer tick that carries Lyme. You could also be bitten by um, a different type of tick, um, the, in this case, the Lone Star tick um, that carries these this Ehrlichia organism. And you, so you could have actually two separate events that really looks like a true uh, co-infection, kind of presents like a co-infection. Um, but Ehrlichia, as we understand it, is carried by a different type of tick, but can present as a really fulminant tick-borne disease. And are Ehrlichia symptoms similar to Lyme? So Ehrlichia um, uh, causes kind of a, a fever, headache, myalgia. Um, rarely, less commonly, will it have a rash. Um, but it is much more of an acute presentation. We see disturbances in uh, people's white cell counts. They can actually have low white cell counts. They can be anemic. They can have low platelets. Um, and it presents rather acutely. So an acute Ehrlichia infection is a pretty serious infection. Um, it's not as common as Lyme, um, but it can be quite serious. Um, and so it is one of the things that we are we look for when we see people coming in with fever, myalgias, plus or minus a rash, and then some concerning changes on some of the serum chemistries, such as the white cell count or the red blood cell count or platelets. Okay. Um, and, then, and the... Go ahead. I'll just finish one thing. And so this, you know, Ehrlichia... Um, and ehrlichiosis is the disease state that we understand or how we describe it. Um, that fever, headache, possibly rash, and changes in the, the blood chemistry. You know, we can't really wait around 
to test for antibodies because it can be such a fulminant disease that you, know, you can die within the first week of, um, of that illness. Uh, so there are PCR tests genetic tests where we can more rapidly see is this organism present now confirmatory testing is still doing some of the antibody testing so looking at you know the igm retesting igg um, and looking for changes in the titer of igg over time but it's one of those where we they encourage you to do you know pcr genetic testing very acutely because um, as we understand it it's the acute illness that um, that we're very worried about because it can it can be fatal and are you talking fever like one four one oh five like that like serious spike in a fever? Yeah, you can have serious you know major fever one oh three one oh four one oh five yeah um, okay. fever. Okay. Um, so let's the other organisms. Okay, go ahead. Um, the other organisms that present very similarly to Ehrlichia, and there's some crossover, um, are. Uh, Rocky mounted spotted fever, which is caused by a type of bacteria in the Rickettsia family. So Rickettsia are intracellular bacteria, and they actually are parasitic in that they need to to harvest ATP, the energy currency, from other cells. And it's also quite small, similar to a, a large virus. And it presents quite fulminantly um, with Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever um, with severe headaches, myalgias. It most commonly is well known for a rash on the arms, sort of spotted rash, um, really, really severe headaches. And it can be rapidly fatal. It's actually um, a more virulent and fatal disease, uh, disease than uh, almost any of these other tick-borne diseases. And it's uh, most commonly seen in sort of the southeast um, as it's carried by the dog tick, so once again, a different type of tick than what uh, that we see with Borrelia, um, but it can cause a major illness. And our understanding of the organism is in causing this major Ill- illness, and we don't have a great understanding of what it means to have positive antibodies months, years later in the setting of maybe some new clinical symptoms. Um, we really don't understand it in that in that context, we really only understand it in terms of this acute, fulminant, and also kind of scary infection. So we've got these, these we've talked about two of these infections now, uh, the ehrlichiosis, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Now, does uh, rickettsia also come on hard and strong like that as well? Yes, they're usually okay. very hard, strong, fulminant, if they're going to cause this pathogenic... Yes. You know, illness. So, so they, fulminant's fancy doctor talk for is you feel like crap. <laughs> like ser- seriously. Now, and and here's my question for you: is because they're these serious diseases that the doctor doesn't do his or her job, their patient could die. Does does that kind of take the spotlight off Lyme? It most certainly does, um, and you can go. There are some great resources. I was going to sort of wait to the end, but the CDC does actually have a great handout on uh, testing, on treatment of some of these most common tick-borne diseases, rickettsia and ehrlichia being two of them, and describing that initial acute illness that is is rare but can be fatal. You know, the what is somewhat fortunate is that the drug that's commonly used to treat both of those acute infections is doxycycline. 
the same first-line medicine that is used in Lyme. Now, the time course of uh, how long that medicine is given for those illnesses is usually, if at best, two weeks. Um, so it's given over a shorter time course. So um, if there is, now, as we've also talked about, both of these organisms are carried by different types of ticks. There is some overlap geographically, um, but it's you know we're getting into less and less likely that you were bitten by a tick that carried Borrelia and also bitten by a tick that carried Rickettsia. Um, it is possible, um, but uh, the courses of medicine for both of those infections, the acute infections, generally speaking, at best will be as long as two weeks, but they're more commonly shorter. And so if there is Lyme present, most likely it's not being fully treated. It's been theoretically treated with the, the, the appropriate medicine, but maybe not the appropriate time course. And when we go back to the immune system, that massive whack, I mean, that you know, fulminant illness with a tick-borne disease, that's disturbing something in the body. And so it makes complete sense to me that maybe that then makes someone more um, susceptible to a later Lyme infection or someone who could manifest a um, now reactivated infection with some previous organism. I mean, that's when you can really just explode things. But it is important to know that, yes, it does take center stage. It is treated appropriately because it can be fatal. And there is some overlap with, with the appropriate medicines for Lyme. But um, it's not really, Lyme isn't really on the radar when you think about those two illnesses. And what about... Babesia and babesiosis. That's kind of a completely different animal, right? It is. It is a completely different animal. Um, but what makes this one most important is that it is an organism that is commonly carried by that deer tick that carries Borrelia. So it becomes very relevant as this is a true, as I'm describing it, true co-infection and possibly you know, it's it's hard to tell, but between Babesia and anaplasmosis are most likely the most common true co-infections with Lyme. Um, Babesia is a protozoa, so it's in that sort of strange eukaryotic unicellular class of organisms, and it has it's a uh, it has a parasitic relationship. So it lives primarily inside of red blood cells. So um, you can actually, the most definitive way to detect uh, a babesiosis, you know, uh, an illness with babesia, is taking a slide, smearing um, some blood, and looking under a microscope, and actually looking at the protozoal form inside of red blood cells. So now, it, it's big enough you can see. It's big enough that you can see, exactly. Um so you can see it inside of uh, the red blood cells. Now, that's still incredibly difficult to do, but that's about as definite as you can get. So depending on someone's clinical symptoms and you see the organism inside of, well, it's, it is, has it infected and is, trying, and is replicating, you know, living inside of your red blood cells. Okay. So, so Babesia is in the ticks. And correct, but it it doesn't. It's not. I'm going to start using fancy language like you. It's not a fulminant presentation. It comes. It's a stealth presentation. Yes, almost um, nearly in every case, it will be initially asymptomatic. So when you get that bite from you know a deer tick and you're inoculated with Borrelia and Babesia comes along, you usually don't not you do you. Do not manifest symptoms related to 
of obesity because it takes time for it to replicate inside of your red blood cells and to cause lysis and dysfunction of the red blood cells. So it usually comes on months, you know, weeks, months later um, as a really also scary initial presentation. Super high fevers. Those are the people who get 104, 105 fevers, you know, arthralgias, headaches. It it kind of looks like a malaria type presentation um, and is seen commonly with uh, ma- malaria because that is also caused by a protozoal infection. Um, and it can lead to scary things, um, respiratory distress, organ failure, and it can um, be, be lethal. But initially, there's usually no symptoms, and people who are infected you know, will stay asymptomatic. They'll never manifest any kind of acute infection, such as this scary fever, um, you know, organ failure picture. I was going to ask next is, can you have mild versions of those symptoms, or does it always come on in this really strong presentation? Yeah, so back to the spectrum, the way it's classically studied is understanding this worst case, this, you know, very fulminant picture. Um, but yes, in understanding the spectrum, it can cause degrees of asymptomatic to mild symptomatic presentations in, uh, in a host. And most of the issues do come up in, uh, immunoincompetent hosts or immunocompromised hosts you know, who later have, um, a decreased ability to fight off infection or get some other stress that compromises their ability to make red blood cells, to make white blood cells, um, to to make platelets, things like that. So, um, yes, it's generally asymptomatic to mild symptoms that you would never attribute in your mind to Babesia. Now, and here's, uh, I want to get your comments on this too, because unlike Borrelia, unlike the Ehrlichia, the Rickettsia, and even anaplasmosis, because it's a protozoa and infecting the blood cells, the doxycycline doesn't really touch it. Correct. And if you, it's a long incubation period. So let's let's say you do, you know, you you get a rash, you test positive, they give you, I don't know, you even get lucky and get sixty days of doxycycline, and you beat back the Borrelia. But Babesia is hanging out, mm-hmm. you know, and then so you relapse and you say, oh, my God, you know, and you're reading all the forums and all the Internet and say, I'm having I'm having a relapse of Lyme, you know, and whether or not the doctor tests you again or whatever and says, no, it's it's not Lyme. It could it could be. It could be Babesia. Now, you, granted, you're going to have prob- probably different symptoms, but you're, but th- the funny thing, well, like you said, the spectrum of this, there can be so much overlap. Um, and if there is some still some Borrelia left there, or maybe even a third player in there, you know, you, you have, you can get this messy presentation. So th- th- what, how, how do we, how do we get people to test since it is a true co-infection and can come along with the tick? If somebody has Lyme, they should be testing for Babesia at the same time. Yeah. Correct. And it's something that I think needs to become more a part of common practice because as you mentioned, it will change treatment because doxycycline is not a first line medicine that's going to, 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 stop that pathogen from replicating. Um, you know, it can be treated. It is treated to some degree with azithromycin. 
that sort of similar type of antibiotic, but its frontline therapy is an anti-malarial medicine, atovaquone. And so it's a very different medicine, very di- different mechanism. Um, and so if you if you aren't testing for uh, it as a co-infection, then yes, you won't be giving someone that medicine. Um, and but if you don't know it's there, it could go undiagnosed and later cause some illness because once again that Borrelia infection, and even if it's treated with antibiotics, that's a disruption in the immune system. So I see that as it's also creating an environment. If there was another pathogen coming on, it's maybe more likely to cause symptoms uh, in that individual. So yes, it should be tested for more commonly. Now, the, the, the best test is not the way to diagnose. That blood smear test is really not the best way to go about it. There are other tests that can be done um, to, to test for it, antibody tests, um, uh, a PCR test, um, but it's not routine. It's not routinely done in practice. And um, it's something that there's also um, new emerging tests, urine tests, trying to look at the organism itself. So once again, trying to look at, are we looking at the immune system response to an organism, such as an antibody? Or are we looking at a f- you know genetic material, the organism itself? So one of the emerging tests from DNA Connections, a urine test, is looking at multiple different types of Babesia, of course, it can't be simple. So there's different types of Babesia, um, but looking at uh, the presence of that in the urine to see is has this person been infected with this protozoa? Okay, and now let's move on to the last co-infection on our list for today, and that's anaplasmosis. So tell us about anaplasmosis. Yes. So this is one that actually, I'll be perfectly honest, when I was in school, I don't really remember readily, which is actually sad because it is also probably the most common, commonly occurring co-infection with Lyme. It is carried by the deer tick. Um, it's interestingly for you know, history's sake, it actually used to be called human granulocytic ehrlichia. So it's it's similar to it's an intracellular bacteria that's similar to the Ehrlichia that's similar to the Rickettsia, um, and it too usually is actually asymptomatic. Um, when it does cause symptoms, it can look very much like Ehrlichia. It can look like uh, you know Rocky Mountain spotted fever. You can have the fevers, the chills, the myalgias, the headache. Um, there's usually not a rash with it, so kind of like your lichia, usually not a rash, um, but uh, it can cause quite a significant acute illness as well. Um, it's tested in the same way. You look at it, you know, if you're worried acutely, we're looking at the, you know, a PCR test in the blood. Um, we can follow it looking at antibodies over time, you know, in the first week versus, um, you know, after the first week and then into the second and third week. Um, but if there's a, um, you know, fulminant illness present, you'll be testing the whole blood PCR for the, you know, presence of the, the genetic material. I'm listening to the helicopter in the background. Is that what that is? That is a helicopter, which I don't commonly get around here. I have a really loud train um, that <laughs> usually comes by at like two o'clock in the morning. Um, so, uh, but hopefully they're not coming for me for talking about Lyme disease. Yeah, <laughs> there's some people who th- would absolutely be on that board and probably were thinking that before we even mentioned it. You never know. Okay, so here, so so we've done some important work tonight. We've distinguish between a co-infection as in 
comes along with the, vec- it, the vector. It's really present, and you're getting the infection through the same vector at the same time as a, as a true co-infection. And I think it's important to know when you're speaking with the doctor, you need to speak their language because otherwise they, they're going to turn tune you out very quickly. Now, my, my final question for you, being on the medical side, on the clinical side, and really on the front lines here, how it's hard enough sometimes to get a doctor to do a Lyme test. How the heck are you going to get a doctor to do Lyme plus co-infection? You know, how do you, how do you do that? Yes. Yeah, so I would, I would direct people to um, this PDF document that I mentioned earlier. It is put out by um, uh, the CDC. It's actually, it's a reference manual for healthcare providers, um, but it's put out every year. It's for describing tick-borne diseases of the United States, and they update it each year. And within that document, they go through and describe the main illnesses, the, the types of ticks which carry uh, these bacteria or protozoa, um, the regions that they're most commonly understood to, to exist in. And um, it is, yes, te- technically written for healthcare providers, but there's so much information there. And if you bring that in to a conversation with your healthcare, they're actually probably going to look at that and be like, you made me much smarter um, in understanding tick-borne diseases um, and will be much more likely to order the test because that document tells them what tests they should order. Um and uh, what most likely is going to be relevant or what truly is a co-infection. It even gives recommended courses of uh, antibiotics, certain medications. So um, I can probably I'll have a link. It's a freely available document. I guess it's intended for healthcare providers, but I think um, it's got content in there that is certainly can be accessed by the layperson or at least printed off and brought to a doctor's appointment and say, hey, doc, you know, what do you think of this? Um, and I think you can start a conversation there. Well, we'll definitely put the link to that uh, in the show notes section. Uh, and so, and so, um, I can hear I can hear some of my friends saying, "Look, it's my my doctor is a closed minded idiot." Let's 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 just say that you're you're not one of those doctors, <laughs> doctor, <laughs> but <clears throat> you know it. Uh, are you going to insult the? Let's put it just really this, this simply, this, this humanly. Are you going to insult the doctor by bringing in that pamphlet? Or are you going to say, "Oh, thanks for saving me the time. I don't have to look this up." So, I certainly cannot speak to how most physicians will react, but I can at least say if you take the approach of you bring the document and you say, you know, I was really curious to get your thoughts on uh, if I could be infected with these organisms or what is your opinion of these tick-borne diseases? Is it something that I should be worried about? So use, you know, don't be confrontational. Don't hand it to the person and say, read this or do this test on me or I have this. Like That puts the person, you know, they're kind of you know, back on the edge, they feel uncomfortable because you're probably presenting them with information um, that they may not have readily, like sort of in their fluent knowledge. But if you come expressing curiosity, if it's something that you should be worried about and give it to them in that way, they're going to be much more willing to say, 
okay, let me read more about this um, and let me explore this with you together. Um, That's probably the best advice I can give. Hopefully that's helpful. I think that's really helpful. I mean, a lot of you know, we're, we're, it's human nature. We're trying to persuade people. And it's always easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar, right? I mean, it's, it's just human nature. So if we go at them, guns blazing, uh, you know, because we're mad about something else or we, we're afraid they won't listen to us, um, they'll pick up on that and they'll, they'll be defensive. Um, and one of, one of the nice things is this is, you know, as much as we hate them, this is the CDC's document. So you're not, you're not bringing in an ILADS document. You're not bringing in, you know, something from my website. (laughs) Yes. Who who is that guy anyway? Right. It's, it's, it's the source. And so they'll, they'll flip it over and look at the back and say, okay, we, you know, at least I know what I'm getting here is a standard. And if you can make, if you can make your case within the CDC's guidelines, then, you know, that's, that's a smart thing to do. And I, and I think this co-infection idea, you know, at least for the Babesia, right. Uh, and, and the anaplasma is, is worth doing because, you know, who knows how many of the cases out there is what, uh, and, and we know this. I mean, people who are chronically ill, but the kind of the conversion from, uh, ac- acute tick-borne infections to the chronic state where things are really a problem, <clears throat> excuse me, are part of this multiple infection and just really missing some of these, these other infections that, that get around because they have a different mechanism, uh, like, like the Babesia. Exactly. And um, I would tell people it's with all of this point out, I'll continue to hammer home. And I see this as empowering. I see this as hopeful. You know, the future of treatment is going to be on immune modulating therapies. So if you start to you know, look around and see what are the types of treatments that people are doing for autoimmune diseases, for you know, acute or chronic infections, for allergies. When you start to look at, you know, for cancer, when you start to look at some of these therapies, they're just, you know, a lot of them fundamentally come back to being some form of immune modulation. And you can do that with more than just an antibiotic. An antibiotic or even an anti-malarial Antiviral is just one form of trying to modulate the immune system because get this, the antibiotic, as we've been describing it, it can block um, protein replication of a bacteria. It can mess with the integrity of the cell wall, but your immune system still has to clear that infection. It's just helping you perhaps curtail its rate of replication or curtail um, sort of an acute phase, your immune system still has to clear it. And commonly, the bacterial products, you know, that when a bacteria is either lysed or broken down, um, or toxins released from bacteria, they're actually causing illness. And if you don't have an immune system that's able to phagocytize or clean up some of the, the breakdown products or clear the bacteria, you can still manifest disease. So, I see it as empowering as what can I do to support my immune system and what tools out there, antibiotics are just one of them, that can be used to help me in a specific case. And I think so much research is going to go into understanding, you know, this is where 
theoretically, and you know, some people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Antibiotics can be used in a state of a viral infection or can be used with an autoimmune condition because they're doing something, they're modulating the immune system. They might not be a really good tool for it because that's probably not the primary dysfunction in a viral infection or in an autoimmune condition. But why do we see people get better on antibiotics with these various conditions that aren't directly related to bacteria, it's because it's 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 immune modulating, and all of these future therapies, low dose naltrexone and helminth therapy, and just I mean some of the basis of acupuncture. I mean all of this, a lot of it comes back to immune modulation. So hopefully, if you take um, something away from this, is immune modulation is going to be the future, and just seeing it as a I need an antibiotic because it's going to kill this bacteria is once again tear too nearsighted. Dr. Abbott, you've been incredibly, incredibly generous with your time. I know you're a very busy man. You've got a lot of projects going on. Thank you so much for taking us along this journey about co-infections and the immune system and really the bigger picture. I know we started off, we kind of out there in, in, uh, in, 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 in very, uh, my, I'm, I'm tired now. I can't even think of the right words. Yeah. But, we're a little abstract yeah, talking about Thank things. you. Yes. We're, we're in the world of the abstract. Uh, and we brought it home some with, with the co-infections there. And I think that abstract conversation is important as well. It's, it, it can be hard to initially wrap your mind around. You, you brought it home again so beautifully talking about immune modulation and really that uh, where you're going with this, I think it's so important and it, it really goes down to the core of health, which is, is, is balance, right? It's, it's, we want homeostasis. We, we, we don't want to turn certain systems on and off. We want them to be working in a harmonious whole. And really what we're seeing with these infections is that it disrupts that harmony. And so whatever we can do to bring things back into harmony is important. And whether the Excuse me, that's to help the, the body kill off these things, which when there's an overload, we absolutely need to do. But it, it may not be the whole story. And I think that's really what you're, you're pointing to. So just the, kind of the mindset of, of going after the infection, you know, the pathogenic infection with both guns blazing, uh, it's, it may be a little bit old fashioned. Yeah. And to me, as I said before, all of these therapies and this wider lens of looking at it as the terrain, as the immune system wanting to have flexibility and reach homeostasis, that brings me hope. That's empowering. Knowing I don't have to rely on antibiotics. Yes, they're great for very specific things and can be a huge asset and tool, but knowing that there's so much out there that we can do to support the immune system so much out there um, that gives people hope and you don't necessarily need a lab test or an antibiotic to get there i think we're done hopefully that wasn't too intense <laughs> it was very intense but i enjoyed it you know 
how many years have I been asking you, let's do a co-infection? Well, we've only been on the air for about three and a half. So three years, something like that? Something like that. I've, once upon a time, I thought it would be a cool thing to do for like a Christmas special. So I finally something. got around to organizing Yeah, it. finally. I knew that I didn't know a lot about co-infections, and I was still really surprised about the stuff that I didn't know. Like what? Well, like the like the protozoa, like the ehrlichiosis is a protozoa, and all of those things. It's like it's not just it's not just bacteria we have to worry about. It's little parasites and subparasites, and not just bacteria. My biggest takeaway was again the language, the distinction yes. that the doctors use versus the common layperson's language, and co-infection is a big one. And I think some of these funny little linguistic twists and turns have been at the root of our displeasure with the medical people. So we'll say something like co-infection, and they will just roll their eyeballs because it's not really a co-infection. So technically what they learn in medical school, a co-infection comes in at the same time. Like so it travels, right. It travels through the sick at the same, the tick at the same time as Lyme disease does. Yeah. And so we just mean co-infection, but look, we're, we've got other infections going on at the same time. Yeah. We're infected. Co-ly. Yeah. <laughs> Concurrently. Concurrently. Yes. Yeah. So really what we're talking about is opportunistic infections. I think those little distinctions make a big difference because they really matter to the medical community. Yeah. And when they're under pressure and they're feeling stressed and they have a reason to dismiss us, that's, that's something like that. So be careful with your language. Uh, yeah. I think Dr. Abbott had some great ideas for speaking with your medical professional yeah. and really trying to get them on board yeah. and download that. PDF. CDC, the yeah. CDC PDF, and just have that around so you can give to friends. So when they go, you can they can hand them to their doctor and say, "Hey, will you have a look at this? Is it possible it might have a tick-borne infection?" Yeah, and not any one specific. And if that's a, if that's the difference between getting listened to versus getting dismissed out of hand, then it's good worth grief. It's worth do doing. It. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes. Discretion is the better part of valor. Yeah. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, go on over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you, and we need the star support. Click those four or five stars. Five stars? Five stars. Five stars. And that helps us move up the rankings and get better exposure out there in the world. Also, if you'd like to send us some feedback... Please do so. We love to hear from you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Simply email us at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. That's feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Also, if you don't know your Lime score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com, front slash dragger, and fill out the Lime wait, wait, Ninja. Say that so people can understand wait. you. Front slash. Front slash Tracker. T-R-A-C-K-E-R. Yes. Okay. Or if you just stay on the homepage for a while, you should get a pop-up. Yes. Too. Lime we Ninja made it easy that way. LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker. Also. Also what? It's free. Yeah, it's free. <laughs> <laughs> the most important. <laughs>
important part. <laughs> the most important part, yes. It is free. We are working feverish, feverishly to get out our top 10 transcripts in a book form. Yes. And we got work back today from our graphic artist. Yes. <laughs> and we're making some adjustments there. But yes. Aurora's laughing. But it yeah. looks really good. No, and that's we should why. be I'm excited. We're hoping to get things out next seven days. Yeah. Really? Like yeah. by the next time? Anyway, we'll give you a link when that's done. We'll let you know where you can go to buy it. They're the top 10 podcasts that we've ever done, our most popular podcasts. And people have been asking for transcript for a long time. It's a monumental task for our little operation to do that. But we've managed to pick out the top 10 and get that done. Well, almost done. Yeah. Half, we're over halfway through. We're, we're, we're in the home stretch. The home stretch. Yay. Yeah. And also, for those of you who are in the main area and go to the mid- Coast Lime Conference, I will be the master of ceremonies there on April 28th. So make some plans to get out there. I'll be very happy to meet you and we're going to have a great time. So mark that on your calendar. May, I'm sorry, April 28th, April 28th at the Mid Coast, Main Mid Coast Lime Conference. Okay. Lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would never, ever, ever, ever end. It would just keep going. And going, going and, and going. going. But luckily, we do have a Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas are so cool? Ice cubes are jealous. <laughs> Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.